Ask those who knew Sherm Lutz, and they'll tell you there were two things Sherm couldn't stand. He didn't like government people. They were too controlling. Sherm had come of age in the barnstorming era of aviation. An anything-goes time, when nobody told you how to fly or where to fly, and especially not a government agency. So he had a, he had a chip on his shoulder for the, for the government. The other thing that Sherm didn't like? He hated when people made a fuss over him. He just didn't like to be pointed out or recognized or, you know. And yet, on what would have been his 116th birthday, birthday. his admirers turned out at the Center County Historical Society for an exhibit honoring the man who gave wings to hundreds of men and women and brought commercial aviation right here, dead center. Hi, I'm Katie O'Toole from the Center County Historical Society. At the turn of the 20th century, Penn State was said to be equally distant from everywhere, connected to the outside world only by a few railroad tracks and bumpy two-lane roads. But even then, in the early 1900s, change was in the air, literally. In 1903, in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, the Wright brothers made the first successful flight of a powered aircraft. That same year, Sherman Lutz was born on a dairy farm in Ferguson Township. They had Guernsey cattle. Grandpa separated his milk and sold the cream to Penn State Creamery. That's Phyllis Lutz Barr, Sherm's niece. She's the primary caretaker of Sherm's legacy. She's responsible for most of the artifacts in the Sherm Lutz exhibit, and there's even more in her Pine Grove Mills home. He called me one day and said that he had a lot of pictures and he didn't know what all on the second floor over at the airport office. And if I was interested in any of it, I could come over and get it. That was in 1987 when Sherm was getting ready to retire from aviation. That second floor office that Phyllis visited? Full of soot and uh, sand and grit from the plaster that had come down. But amid the debris were treasures, and Phyllis took it all. Photographs that she framed, newspaper clippings that she preserved in scrapbooks, old logbooks, letters, and awards and recognitions that told the story her uncle was too modest to tell himself. Sherman Lutz was born to be a farmer. His dad, Charles, was a third-generation farmer. And his three sons, Lee, Sherman, and Morris, that's Phyllis's dad, were expected to do their share of chores. But aviation came early to Center County and proved irresistible to young Sherm. In 1919, the U.S. Postal Service chose Belfont as the first stop on an airmail route between New York and Chicago. So Center Countyans became acquainted with the daring airmail pilots, who landed their biplanes in Belfont to refuel and refresh. An auto mechanic by the name of Henry Knoll was the first Center Countyan to own his own plane. A surplus World War I model, a Curtis JN-4D, better known by its nickname, the Jenny. Knoll built an airstrip on his Pleasant Gap property, and to the teenage Sherm Lutz, that airstrip was a little slice of heaven. His family by now had moved from Ferguson Township to a farm in Fillmore, as an adult, Sherm often told the story of how he'd raced through his farm chores and run the seven miles to Knoll's airfield. There he would help out however he could, 
wiping grease from the plane, filling the radiator, and generally absorbing every bit of airplane mechanics and maintenance. When Sherm was 15, Noel allowed him to fly the Jenny. In time, Sherm bought a plane of his own that he kept on his family's farm. It was becoming clear that Sherm was not interested in farming, but there were benefits to having an aviator in the family. Uh, it was customary every Saturday or every Sunday he would fly over weather conditions appropriate. He'd have it rolled up and tied with binder twine mostly uh, several times and drop it from above, far above the barn roof as he could possibly fly. It was the Sunday edition of the Philadelphia Inquirer. <laughs> we come down. Sometimes it broke up pretty bad, but other times it had a softer landing somehow. In the mid-1920s, Sherm took a job with an aircraft designer, Henry Berliner, who would later establish North American Aviation. That was a major aerospace manufacturing company that ultimately could count among its designs the Apollo Command and Service Module and the Space Shuttle Orbiter. So Sherm learned from the best. He officially got his airplane mechanics license in 1928, after moving to Gettysburg. A World War I pilot named Shelley Charles had started a flying service there, along with his brother Paul. Sherm worked for them and joined the brothers on a barnstorming tour of the South. Barnstorming was a term from the early history of American show business. Itinerant singers, dancers, and actors would travel from one small town to the next, performing in barns when no theater was available. The barnstorming aviators staged their shows in the air, doing loops and dives, wing walking, and afterwards taking passengers for rides, which was how they actually made their money. It may have been in Gettysburg that Sherm developed his second passion, photography, because that's where he met Samuel Kuhnert. A farm boy like Sherm, Kuhnert grew up near Halifax, and like Sherm, he was intrigued by aviation. In 1919, he had tried building his own plane using a motorcycle engine. It didn't work, so Kuhnert shifted his interest to photographing airplanes and to aerial photography. The Kuhnert collection in the Pennsylvania State Archives contains more than 6,000 photographic prints and negatives. He was a pioneer aviation photographer. He built his own cameras. But because he had failed to build his own plane, he turned to Sherm. Sherm used to fly him in an open cockpit biplane. He had a camera. He put his leg in one, in one the cockpit in front. That's Gene Briner talking about the photographer Samuel Kuhnert, who took his pictures from the wing of Sherm's plane. And here's where I need to pause and tell you about Gene Briner and Jesse Eckhart, both extraordinary aviators in their own right. I interviewed them for this podcast at Jesse's home near Lancaster in 2015, as we were just beginning the preparations for the Lutz exhibit at the Historical Society. I'm truly sorry to say that neither of them is alive today, but their memories of Sherm were sharp and vivid, as are my memories of them. Now, you might have heard the old saying that there are old pilots and bold pilots, but no old bold pilots. Well, Jesse and Jean were among the exceptions, along with Sherm himself. They all lived well into their 90s, despite countless flights in planes that were not equipped with instruments or other safety features of modern aircraft. 
but they were those rare birds who felt as safe and at ease in the air as on the ground. In our conversation over lunch that day at Jesse's house, it became clear that those early aviators had forged a close-knit community and friendships that lasted a lifetime. It was a big kind of fraternity all over eastern Pennsylvania. Yeah, right. Parts of New Jersey. I mean, we all knew each other, knew about each other. Yeah, yeah. Jesse knew Sherm through her dad, Jess Jones. He was another early barnstormer who had made aviation his life's work. In the 1920s, he bought land along the Mannheim Pike and opened Lancaster's first airport. When the municipal airport was established about eight years later, Jess Jones became the manager, and his young daughters, Helen and Jesse, soon became pilots, soloing when they were barely in their teens. Since she had been named after her dad, Jesse became known in the aviation community as Junior, a nickname that stuck for life. My father ran the airport in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I grew up there at the airport pretty much. The way they punished me, if I wasn't good, they wouldn't let me go to the airport on Saturday. <laughs> so I, I soloed at a very young age, but back then you had to be 18 before you could get any kind of pilot's license, private, commercial, whatever it was. And so I had uh, the pleasure, and I mean it was a pleasure, to fly around on my own with a student pilot permit. I must have cost my dad a lot of gasoline. <laughs> but whenever there wasn't an airplane busy, I was in it. The friendship between her dad and Sherm had begun at Jess's airport with an emergency landing. Sherm at that time was teaching aviation mechanics at the now defunct Beckley College in Harrisburg. From time to time, he would ferry planes in and out for repairs and deliveries. One day, according to Junior... Sherm tells me, back in the 20s, he was coming up from Philadelphia and having trouble with his airplane, and he managed to get it into this airport that my father had started, a little airport, grass field, and there was Dad, and whatever it was, Dad went to a lot of trouble, he thought, to help him out and didn't charge him. And he was so impressed with my dad that when he had an airport, he wanted to be just like my dad. In 1931, Sherm returned to Center County for good, and the following year he opened his own airfield in Bowlesburg. It was located near where St. Joseph's Academy now stands. It consisted of three grass runways and a barn that had been converted into a hangar. The country was mired in depression, so it wasn't an ideal time to be starting a new business. It helped that Sherm received a Certificate of Public Convenience, signed by Pennsylvania Governor Gifford Pinchot, that designated the Bullsburg Airport as a site for passenger pickup and airmail service between Pittsburgh and New York City. Still, Sherm worked hard in those Depression years. He flew charters. He did repairs and maintenance on other people's planes. He competed in air races and performed in stunt shows. He offered sightseeing tours of Center County. But mostly, he gave flying lessons. All told, he supervised the first solo flight of 467 pilots. When they weren't flying planes, or working on planes, or talking about planes, the pilots who came to Sherm's airport just hung out. The airport became a magnet for anyone with the aviation bug. And those who shared his obsession with flying, they became his family. 
perhaps even more so than his actual family, according to his niece Phyllis. He was sometimes very aloof to the family. He would come on special occasions and have dinner with us, take some pictures, and flee for the, for the airport <laughs> because somebody might come in and need some help. So the example set by Jess Jones had stuck with Sherm. And in 1941, Sherm had the opportunity to repay Jess's kindness. Junior was about to start school at Penn State. Her orientation began at Sherm's Bullsburg Airport. One day I took the airplane and flew up to Penn State. And I landed in her Sherm, and I told him who I was. And he was a friend of and and like my dad ever since the late 1920s. But that's the first he met me, and so I want to get from Volsburg into State College. And so he just throws the keys to his car at me and said, go in and look it over. So I did. Found the room, found it, found everything, and uh, came back and uh, thanked him and got the airplane and flew home. Junior had never been away from her family, and she was homesick that first semester. Uh, my dad or my sister, somebody would fly up and get me every weekend. But then... Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States was at war, United and Junior States couldn't fly home on weekends. Was suddenly and deliberately attacked. Once I had to stay there and couldn't fly home every weekend, I became one of the group at the airport, and so... That meant I was one of the group to go over and drink beer as apartment on Saturday nights and all the other wonderful things. I was very fond of Sherm. He was a very nice, gentle man. In March of 1942, Junior turned 18. Despite having hundreds of hours of flying time, she was only now eligible to get her pilot's license. Sherm gave me my private pilot's flight test. And he came out and he said, listen, I see you flying around here all the time. How do I know you're safe? I'm going to ride with you. Put on your parachute. But she still needed to take the written portion of the exam, which was administered only at particular testing centers. So Sherm tells Junior, I want to say that I gave you, my father's daughter, your private pilot's license. So you've got to go home and take your written. Then send that stuff up to me. Don't fly with anybody else, and I will send it in as I recommended you. That's just what I did, and pretty soon then it came back. So Shermlitz gave me my private pilot's license. By the time Junior got her license, Sherm's business, like much of the nation, was recovering from the Depression. In fact, Sherm was busier than ever, and ironically for a guy who didn't like government agents, he had the government to thank. President Roosevelt had announced the creation of the Civilian Pilot Training Program in 1938. It was purportedly intended to boost general aviation by providing pilot training to up to 30,000 college students each year. In reality, it was a barely disguised military training program. I think maybe some smart people saw World War II coming. Right. The program paid for ground school courses at select colleges and flight instruction at facilities located near those colleges. Here we had Professor Klein, who was um, the brother of Phil, and he taught the ground school, and they had a very, very good course. And Sherm provided the flight training at his Bullsburg airport. 
Demand for pilot training was more than Sherm could keep up with. So his good friend Bob Ischler and a couple of other instructors helped out, working 15-hour days, seven days a week at the airfield. Initially open to both men and women, the CPT was limited to men after Pearl Harbor because those who took the course were then required to join the Army Air Corps Reserve or the Navy Aviation Reserve. Well, most of those people that I knew that learned to fly immediately went into the, the services to fly. Junior became an instructor, and like other women pilots, she spent the war years testing and ferrying aircraft and teaching men to fly. Other women took the engineering route into aviation. The Curtis Wright Aircraft Company financed technical training for women at eight colleges. Penn State was one of the eight. The idea was that these women, known as Curtis Wright cadets, would get engineering degrees and take over the airplane manufacturing jobs vacated by men headed to the war front. Sherm soloed at least 10 of Penn State's cadets. In his training of war-bound pilots, Sherm drew upon some of his own harrowing experiences with tight landings or with mechanical failures. Most notably, a 1940 crash landing that put him in the hospital for several months with a severe concussion and more than 20 broken bones. Although none of his CPT students suffered serious injuries, they did occasionally have rough landings that took a toll on the aircraft. Sherm's niece Phyllis said that with all the activity at the Bullsburg field, her dad Morris was pressed into service as a mechanic. Uncle Sherm said he needed mechanical expertise to try to keep the airplanes in flight because so many of the boys were crashing them and they were landing. Dad said that he wished he could teach them not to land five feet off the ground. (laughs) Sherm tried to teach his wartime students everything that could possibly go wrong and how to fix it. One of his early clashes with government agents stemmed from a training exercise. To simulate evasive combat action, he taught his students to fly close to the ground until some jittery officials from the Federal Aviation Administration admonished him for having his trainees buzz the treetops of Center County. But Sherm had developed a reputation for such thorough instruction that military commanders in combat zones were said to begin requesting his students. Some former students credited Sherm's instruction with saving their lives. One, when he was forced to ditch his aircraft on an island in the Pacific. The FAA backed off. It wasn't just his aviation skills that created Sherm's image as an intrepid pilot. By all accounts, Sherm cut a handsome figure in his leather flight suit and white silk scarf. Gene Briner had an aviation shop in Danville. Sherm would sometimes bring airplanes to Gene's shop for repairs. And that's basically where I first met Sherm. Uh, he was well known in the area. We all knew Sherm Lutz, who ran the depot up at State College. He was a very dashing young fellow. An air show promoter by the name of Russ Brinkley also took note of Sherm's good looks and grace. So he sized up Sherm that Sherm, you're going to see in the movies, Sherm was a pretty good looking guy in his younger days. He was. So the story goes that uh, Russ went up to New York City and arranged for a, a screen, screen test. test. A screen test for Sherm for the movies. The only problem? Russ hadn't checked with Sherm, who had no interest in becoming a Hollywood heartthrob. 
Sherm got mad at him. Him and Russ didn't talk for years. <laughs> and I got this from Russ himself. He was going to manage yeah. Sherm after Sherm got to be a mo- got a movie contract. <laughs> Jesse Eckhart, by the way, was also courted by Russ Brinkley. Oh, he was a promoter. He he wanted me to set the world's altitude record for light planes for women. Yeah. And I said, why would I do that? It would take me all day to get up there, and if I even got there, next week some other nutty girl's going up there 50 feet higher. Forget (laughs) it. (laughs) So Junior stayed in Lancaster, and Sherm stayed in Center County. But not for long at his Bullsburg airfield. In the post-war years, aviation boomed. So did the town of State College. The GI Bill provided tuition-free college education for war veterans. An avalanche of students poured into the sleepy little college town, sparking a building spree of both town and gown. Penn State was on the way to becoming a major research university. It was time, Sherm thought, for the town to be connected to the growing network of commercial airlines. He bought some farmland to the west of State College in Pine Hall, And in 1947, he opened his new and improved airport, which he dubbed the State College Depot. Since the 1920s, Sherm had believed that State College would never truly be on the map without a commercial air service. There were plenty of airstrips throughout the county, but Sherm's smooth 4,600-feet runways were the longest of any of the local airports. So his airfield was the obvious choice for the first scheduled passenger air service into State College. Local dignitaries, the press, spectators, and some members of the State College High School marching band were on hand for the arrival of that first All-American Airways flight in 1949. It was a DC-3, a propeller-driven airplane that could carry about two dozen passengers. It must have been a proud day for Sherm Lutz, but his success in bringing scheduled air service to State College would not last. All-American Airways was growing. It would evolve into Allegheny Airlines before getting absorbed by U.S. Airways. And Sherm's depot no longer met the company's needs. And I can understand why. There was a grass field subject to problems in snow because you can't just scrape it, you scrape all the grass off too. That's Bruce Kendall, a pilot from Perth, Australia, who settled in State College in the early 1960s. Problems in snow, problems when it gets wet, you skid on it. You made the approach low over Call Street School, there was a fuss about that. So the airline, not surprisingly, shifted to a less contentious place. In 1951, All-American Airways moved its commercial service to Alberts Airport in Clearfield County, then to an airport built during the Great Depression in Rush Township near Phillipsburg. It was the Black Mashannon Airport, later renamed Midstate, and its runways were paved. Sherm continued to give lessons and fly charters at his depot. He once flew Penn State's president, Milton Eisenhower, to Washington, D.C., when the government plane sent to pick him up couldn't get started on a cold January morning. Another time, he flew Bob Prince, the legendary sportscaster for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Here's Bobby Clemente. 
In the 1950s and early 60s, Prince also announced games for the Steelers and the Nittany Lions. On a day when Prince was double booked, he left Beaver Field in the fourth quarter of a Penn State game, turning the play-by-play over to his color analyst, Mickey Bergstein. He then had Sherm fly him to Philadelphia for the Steelers' matchup with the Eagles. But Sherm was best remembered for the many times he helped out his own friends and family. His niece Phyllis flew with him only once, but it meant the world to her. She worked for the State Department of Education. One day she was asked to attend to an urgent matter at a school in Wilkesbury, but her car was in the shop for repairs. So I called Uncle Sherm. I said, can you take me? Sure. He'd take me up. And so that's how I got up to Wilkesbury and back. But that was, that was the only time that I flew with him. What was that experience like being in one of those little planes with your uncle? Oh, I loved it. <laughs> I really loved it. <laughs> Sherm continued to advocate for passenger service to State College. The majority of the air traffic coming into Center County was associated with the university, and it seemed silly to have passengers dropped off across the mountain in Phillipsburg. University officials agreed. In fact, Eric Walker, who was then the president of Penn State, was actively pushing for a local airport. Sherm lobbied the university and local government officials to designate the State College Air Depot as the municipal airport. But then, according to Bruce Kendall... I think things went bad when I could track as far as an agreement being made with Sherm that that property would be bought for some figure in the future if various things happened. Various things like paved runways, a radio beacon, lights for nighttime landing. Gene Briner remembers how Sherm bristled at the demands. What I could get from Sherm, he told me they were going to buy the airport from him and set him up as manager and be all government. And And he didn't like government. And they'd hire him as a manager, and then they could fire him. Well, he was afraid that he'd lose control of the airport. So they said, to heck with you, Sherm. We'll build our own airport. Well, at some point after that, things went sour, and Eric Walker's attention switched to the airport at University Park. The airport at University Park was located north of campus. It had been built in the 1950s by some local private pilots on land they had leased from the university. When I first went out there, I think there was one hangar and uh, they had paved the runway, but it was not past the stage of crushed rock. Sherm didn't like the university or anything to do with it from that point on. Well, Phyllis can attest that it wasn't Sherm's first run-in with the university. He would land at the Penn State Flower Gardens until they told him. No more. So, <laughs> please desist in landing your plane in the flower gardens. Sherm desisted permanently once University Park became the county's aviation hub. Scheduled passenger service began at University Park in 1978, leading to the decline of Midstate and the growing obsolescence of Sherm's depot. In the early 1960s, there wasn't much traffic coming in and out of the, the air depot. But he was always there, and if somebody was coming in, giving them directions, what the wind conditions were, and so on. Nancy McDonald had dreamed of flying since she was a little kid. We had to write an autobiography in 12th grade English. I stated that I wanted to be a jet pilot. My 
teacher told me to keep my feet on the ground. No surprise, she got different advice from Sherm. So it was 1961, and um, walked out the railroad tracks and found the road that led back to the airfield. And there was Mr. Lutz and a couple other people. And I told him I wanted to, to learn to fly, and would he be willing to, to teach me? Sherm didn't think she could afford flying lessons. She was fresh off the farm, working as a typist at a meager salary. But she kept coming back. Almost every weekend, walk out to that airfield and just hang out. Sherm might have recognized a bit of himself in Nancy McDonnell the boy who used to race through his farm chores to hang out at Hen Knoll's airstrip in Pleasant Gap. He agreed to give her flying lessons in exchange for some work around his office. Uh, one of the most fun things was he uh, phoned one Sunday and said he was going to deliver a Center Daily Times by air to a friend of his living in the Warriors Mark area, and did I want to fly along? So, of course, said yes and hustled out to the airfield and got in the plane and we went out to Warrior's Mark, where he went into a deep dive, leaned out the window. The person who was, he was delivering to was out in the yard waving, threw the paper out, and almost landed on the guy's feet. It, it was so good. And it was such fun. And at this time, because University Park was well-established, State College Airport was kind of out of the way. Uh, a lot of people who even lived near there didn't even know the airport was there. That's David Dix. He knew about the depot only because his parents lived right up the road on Coral Street. So when he would fly in to visit them from his home near Shemokin, he would land at Sherm's. He remembers the first time he met Sherm. So I land, park the plane, get out, and there's this kind of run-down house in the corner. And so I figured, and I think he might have had a sign over it said office, so I figured that must be where I'm going to go. So I go in there. And Sherm was there. First, he was going to charge me. He said, the landing fee here is like $5. And I said, okay, well, I can, I can do that. But I started talking, and that he, that he knew of my mom and dad, and said, well, we'll forget about the landing fee. But, so uh, Sherm was kind of like that. He, he was like, he didn't talk a lot, and he was very short in people. But once he got to know people, he, he'd sort of uh, soften up quite a bit. And I, that's what I found then. It's no surprise that David Dix would use Sherm's airport. He's the president of the local chapter of the Experimental Aircraft Association. He moved back here in 1983 and quickly got tied into the local aviation scene. He's one of those guys who likes to talk shop with other pilots. So after that, I flew in there several times. I always liked landing at these out-of-the-way airports. And at this time, because University Park was well-established, State College Airport was kind of out of the way. Pete Shemp is another local pilot who made his way to Sherm's. He was looking for a plane to rent in the late 1970s, and Sherm's fees were lower than at University Park. But that was only part of the appeal for Pete. The other thing that was pretty neat about it was, first of all, it's a grass strip, but the plane that he had that he rented out was an Aronka Champ. It's a cloth-covered little airplane, and, and the unique part about it was the seating was fore and aft, just like a, a fighter fighter plane or something like that, and it actually had a stick, two sticks, one in the front and one in the back. Once, when Pete was up in the Aronka Champ, he had a problem with the stick. 
He banked left to come in for a landing, but then he couldn't get the right wing to level out. And I was kind of afraid of breaking the cable by putting too much pressure on it. And uh, so I managed to slip it in, straighten it out, and get it on the ground. Taxied in and said, sure, I got a problem here. Uh, the controls are sticking. So he went to the, walked around the airplane, went to the wing, and uh, he flips the aileron up, takes his fist and goes, boom, and taps it on the end and slides the aileron down the the uh, wire that it was mounted on it and said, well, what happens with these cloth-covered planes? And, but you're good to go now. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I went ahead and took it and never had any problems with it. With business dwindling and Sherm getting on in years, he finally closed the depot in 1987. He kept one of his planes, a Beechcraft Bonanza, and he still flew, just not into University Park Airport. And, uh, that's the airport he would never go into. He, he'd fly all around it. He never landed there. He, the only time he ever went into the University Park was the day I finally got him in there. Sherm refused to land at University Park, except for one time. The boys at the University Park Airport called me and they said, Say, uh, we want to recognize Sherm. Looks as a pillar of aviation here, and, and but we can't get him over to this airport because of the bad blood that existed between the University Park Airport and uh, and Sherman the Air Depot. The new terminal was built by then, and uh, they asked me, "Can you get Sherman?" I said, "Well, I'll work on it." It was not an easy sell. Officially, the event was an open house to showcase the new terminal. Sherm had just closed his airport five months earlier. He was in no mood to take part in the University Park celebration. But other pilots wanted to recognize him for his contribution to aviation in Center County. Not just for producing so many pilots over the years, but for his decades of advocacy that had resulted in passenger service to State College, even if it wasn't at the airport of his choosing. So the date at the open house, October 17, 1987, was proclaimed Sherm Lutz Day in Center County, with no guarantee that Sherm would show up. It took me a whole year of diplomacy. Jean Briner had sold Sherm on a low-key event. About a month before it was to happen, Jean met Sherm for breakfast at the corner room to discuss it. We stood at the table and pulled out a copy of the program that was being publicized Sherm Lutz Day, and oh, he was furious. What's this all about? Oh, I said, Sherm, I said, they want to recognize you. I says, uh, I'd like to fly you in in the fleet. Well, I'll go, but I won't talk. (laughs) (laughs) The fleet that Gene wanted to fly him in? It was a 1929 fleet biplane a model similar to the one that Sherm gave lessons in back in the 1930s. Sherm begrudgingly agreed. On the day of the event, Jean and Sherm took off from the Belfont Airport and headed south to University Park. I was there that day with a picnic lunch and three of my kids. We watched the commuter plane, as we called it, arrive from Pittsburgh for its scheduled 11 a.m. landing. Then an Air Force team dazzled all of us spectators with their aerobatics. And then, 
a dot to the north grew bigger and bigger and bigger as the biplane came into view. So we landed and taxied up among the crowd and I got out and melted into the crowd and Sherm, the crowd all came around Sherm and he just beamed. And he took him up to the podium and they introduced him to the crowd. He wouldn't talk, he wouldn't give no speech. Deep down, I think Sherman was really appreciated uh, the attention he got. Near the end of his life, Sherm's niece Phyllis asked him how he wanted to be remembered. It talked about burial and um, what he wouldn't want on his stone and so forth. Oh, he didn't want anything. She asked him what he wanted on his gravestone. Just my name. And I said, well, I think you should have something on it about being a, a premier uh, aviator. And Sherm said, yeah, I guess that would be okay. When Sherm died at the age of 94 in 1998, the Center Daily Times carried a brief obituary. It noted merely that he had owned and operated the Bullsburg and State College depots. People like Nancy McDonnell, who knew Sherm, understood the no-fuss send-off. Uh, he was not a boisterous person. He was very soft-spoken, appeared almost gentle, but anybody who wanted to learn to fly, anybody who loved to hear about flying, was part of his family, I believe. There's a final twist to Sherm's story that I learned about from Tom Johnston, who goes by TJ. TJ worked for the FAA's Phillipsburg Flight Service at Mid-State Airport. And Sherm was one of the airport owners and pilots that we dealt with every single day. He became a very good friend of mine. Like everyone, it seems, TJ remembers the first time he met Sherm. Uh, one of the first things he said to me that same day was, he said, you know, I'm not a real fan of government workers, but uh, you fellas in FAL, okay, you're okay by me. <laughs> now, most airports around the world have a three-letter location identifier. Sherm's airport code was SCE for State College. The code assigned to University Park was UNV. On the day that Allegheny Airlines started its scheduled service into University Park Airport, there was some confusion. A dispatcher had called Phillipsburg to get the three-letter code for the new airport. Their dispatchers called them and said, hey, we're going to be flying into State College. What's their identifier? They looked up State College and got, mistakenly, SCE. And that's what they told the airline. TJ was on duty the day of that first passenger flight, and he got a call from the air traffic control center that went something like this. We just got a flight plan that said the airline was going to a dirt runway in State College. I said, no, it's going to University Park. I can guarantee that. I promise you, he's going to University Park. Change the flight plan. I'll call the dispatcher and make sure their future flight plans are corrected. But when TJ made that call, the dispatcher nearly exploded. I got the expletive. All the books had been printed. All the tickets had been printed. All of the baggage claims had been printed. And he didn't know if he could get it changed. They all said 
S-C-E. And they stayed that way. So the three-letter identifier for University Park is still UNV. It's how airport controllers and the National Weather Service identify it. But the ticket and baggage claims? You fly into University Park, UNV, it says SCE on your ticket. Because they could not get it changed. It was already so deep into the aviation system. To TJ's knowledge, it's the only airport in the country that has a ticket number that is different from the airport identifier. And to this day, they still say SCE. So Sherman does live on at University Park Airport every day. So the next time you travel in or out of UNV, or University Park Airport, look at the SCE on your ticket and think of Sherman Lutz, who did so much to bring aviation here, dead center. Special thanks to everyone who talked to me for this podcast, including the late Gene Briner and Jesse Jr. Eckhart, along with Phyllis Lutz-Barr, David Dix, T.J. Johnston, Bruce Kendall, Nancy McConnell, and Pete Schempf. Most of the research for this podcast drew upon the collection of Phyllis Lutz-Barr, much of which she has generously donated to the Center County Historical Society. The theme music is titled Coffee Shop. It was composed by David Zeste. Finally, my apologies to Sherm Lutz. He would have hated the fuss of a podcast. <laughs>